This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast a podcast all about women and the arts hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and others on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Well, before we get started, I have a couple of things I wanted to say really quick that are along the same vein as books and ties in perfectly to our last episode that we did on Twilight. So, okay. Today I was scrolling on TikTok and I somehow ended up on Twilight TikTok, which does happen every once in a while, you know? Yeah, the algorithm just throws me one every once in a while. And apparently Stephanie Meyer has announced that she is releasing at least three new books in the Twilight series. And they're going to be focusing on Jacob and Renesme and their whole story. And apparently... The okay. Collins and Renesmee are now entering high school again, but, like, together. So she's, like, going to high school with her parents as, like... Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, and no. then um, she's 18, but, apparently, now, so... But doesn't... Don't you think, though, that if Bella graduated, that she could just live as an 18-year-old? They're doing it in Canada. So they moved up to Canada, and they're starting their, like, years over whatever in high school again for the next little bit. Because, of course, now that they have Renesmee, and with how fast she's aging, they can't stay in forks for that long because it's kind of unnatural. Mm. So apparently that is what's next. And the first one is called Moonchild, I believe. So, yeah, that was kind of quite the announcement to get after how many years of silence <laughs> from her? Yeah. So, yeah, that was really I weird. am, like, trying to under- like decide if I, – I mean, I'm going to read them. I know. I was like, so I might as well, we'll give them see. a shot, right? Like, read it. Like, and, I absolutely will try, yeah. but I'm just, like, high school again? <laughs> I know, but I think it'll all be from Renesmee's point of view, which will be interesting. So I wonder how she'll yeah. change it and everything. I mean, all right. Color me intrigued. Yeah. I'm into it. <laughs> and the other one is in the last episode, Sadie mentioned she had been reading A Court of Thorn and Roses. And I yep. have since finished the first book and I'm moving on to the second. I literally ordered the entire series yes. on Amazon. <laughs> It's so good. It's so good. So if you are looking for a book to read, definitely, definitely go read them for sure. Join in. Yeah. Okay, everyone. We're going to have to clip out a lot of what we were just talking about because me and Sadie went in depth into talking about A Court of Thorn and Roses and we don't want to ruin it. Which means it's really good. (laughs) Go read it. It's seriously so good. I highly recommend. Um, And welcome to today's episode. (laughs) It is our bonus episode for October. Wow, we're doing this really out of order. Yes, we are. And it's appropriate, though, that we're starting talking about books because... This is our bonus episode for the book that we read this month. This month, <laughs> excuse me. 
which was the science of women in horror. The special effects, stunts, and true story behind your favorite fright films, which is written by Meg Harf- Halfdahl. Yeah. I think so. And Kelly Florence. Yes. And they also have a podcast that they co-host together called Horror Rewind. Ah. Um, and it looks like they've also written quite a few other books, um, as well as The Science of Monsters. So definitely yeah. go check out all of their stuff. But I have to say, this book was so interesting. <laughs> it was. Yeah. And, like, now the way I view horror is just inherently feminist. I know, same. <laughs> <laughs> like, the horror genre is a feminist genre, and I can't separate the two in my mind anymore, I don't oh, think, after man. reading this. It's so cool. Basically, the structure of the book is they cover a trope from the horror genre and then go into a bunch of different films that kind of either perfectly display that trope or kind of backfire against the traditional aspects of the trope or like a different way of looking at it and there's 10 of them Mm -hmm. in total i realized i am not as well versed on my horror novels (laughs) as i once thought that i was because there are so much so many movies here I have not seen or even heard I know, of, so. same. <laughs> and I mean, like, I'm not a huge horror watcher anyway. No, but same. reading, like, the synopsis and, like, the behind the scenes and, like, the different thought and every and history that went into a lot of these, like, it makes me want to watch really a cool. lot of them. So, so how we're going to structure this episode is, like we mentioned, there's 10 different, like, not stereotypes, but, or, like, tropes mm-hmm. that are used. Stani and I are both just going to co- cover a couple of them. Um, so you can get kind of an idea of what the book talks about and the different shows that it highlights. But um, then you'll still have plenty on your own that if you do want to get a copy of this, you can go get. And I should quickly mention that we do a monthly giveaway where if you just share a favorite episode from the month or just from the story. I guess from ever <laughs> that we've done onto your Instagram stories and tag us, you could win our book of the month. Yeah. So if you really like this episode and you're really interested, go put it on your story, just tag us and you could potentially win this book. It's really awesome. It I don't, is. Even if it's no longer October when you get it, you'll still enjoy it. And <laughs> it's such an easy read. Like it is not hard at all yes. to digest or even like flip open if you just want to read like one of it's them. It's not like a boring textbook. Yeah. Like, it's very entertaining and very fun. They have interviews and and facts and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I love that they did that where they also tied in interviews with just different women who are involved in the horror film genre, whether that's like directors or actresses. And they're just intermingled with the chapters. So it's like you get people's personal experience. You get just commentary on different popular movies tv shows it's it's great yeah and one of my favorite things about it honestly is at the very beginning in the introduction they talk about like the modern horror genre and how it was basically invented by the 19 year old girl mary shelley who wrote frankenstein yeah and kind of created that idea of like who's the monster the one who created it the creature itself like the things that happen along the story and how like women and the horror genre have always been intrinsically uh-huh. connected in one way or another. So, yeah, I really loved this quote from the introduction where it just said, what do we want from our female characters? They don't need to be perfect. They don't need to even necessarily 
kick ass. They don't need to make all the right decisions. We want to see a reflection of ourselves, yes. which I thought was a really, I just love oh, that. I, love that and I think too. that perfectly just like, that's the thesis for the whole book. I feel. agreed. Let's dive into it. Yeah, do you cool. want to just go through your couple yes. that you want to talk about and then I'll go through mine. Cool. So I'm going to be talking about sections one, two, and three, which cover the ideas of the mother, the final girl, and sex, <laughs> all within the horror genre. The first one is the mother. And this, they started off with talking about this really interesting movie that I had never heard about before called Prevenge. Same. I was very intrigued by it so the story follows a pregnant woman who is getting revenge on those that she believe killed the father of her baby which is already spooky but then add this other layer of the unborn baby talking to and directing the mother on who to kill so it's helping her enact this revenge on the murderers of its father um, some other cool things about about it, Alice Lowe was the writer, director, and the starring actress in the show. So cool. And she did it all while she was pregnant. <laughs> she actually was pregnant. It wasn't like a prosthetic stomach or anything. Like, she was currently pregnant, I think, with her first child while she did yeah. all of this. And so they had to, like do it so quickly yeah they did like continuity they did the entire thing in 11 days so that she could avoid her stomach changing sizes in between like the weeks of shooting which is insane and she actually wrote the script in only two weeks as well which is also crazy um but kind of a lot of the themes that this movie like brings up that are often explored in horror and just film in general is there's like this idea of failed femininity if you're like unable Mm -hmm. to produce a child if you work outside of the home in like an untraditional motherhood way then a lot of the times that was considered like failing as a female character yeah um and a lot of the guilt that goes with that and then also a major horror thing is like the idea of giving birth, I feel like, is often used as, like, a yeah. horror concept. Um, they brought up films like Rosemary's Baby, Devil's Do, and The Prodigy. And also, like, even just a simple birth scene without any other, like, <laughs> aspects to it are also used at a level of horror. Like, Alien, The Fly, and A Quiet Place more recently, if you yeah, remember. Yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> A Quiet Place is... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The first thing I think of. Where she's having a baby and things right behind her. Anyway, definitely the scariest part of that film. And it's just because of this idea of, like, pregnancy kind of being horrific. Even though yeah, it's also I mean, considered, like, a miracle. But yeah. you, like, have a thing in you that's, like, completely reliant on your body it's a living off of you it can influence your emotions um your hormones your feelings your body your health um another crazy thing that kind of went into it is 20 percent of women who die while pregnant are actually victims of violent crimes so pregnant women are often like the murdered victim in all scenarios Mm -hmm. due to that extra level which is really sad um, yeah. Especially when you consider the fact that it's probably by their husbands. Yeah. 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 And then on top of that, um, grief while pregnant actually leads to physical illnesses and problems with the birth and after. 
So kind of exploring that whole idea of what the what control the baby, the unborn baby has on the mother was this whole idea within this movie. And it mm. sounds really interesting. I know. I'm like, I actually want to go watch that. Yeah. Especially the fact that it's written, direct and, directed and starred in by the same woman. That's a really mm-hmm. big accomplishment and really cool for the horror genre. And they have an interview with her in the book that I'm not yeah, going to recap, but that. yeah, so cool. definitely check it out. The next one is a movie called Babadook, and this one is kind of similar. It's a woman who becomes a widow when her husband is killed in a traffic accident on the way to the hospital while she is in labor, which sounds mm. like the worst possible scenario that could happen to someone and then what happens is that after this the trauma and grief that she's dealing with due to her husband and suddenly being a widowed and single mother it manifests itself as like a monster that begins Mm -hmm. to affect her and her son um this one was also written and directed by a woman jennifer kent who even though she said she wasn't a mother herself she took a lot of inspiration from like parents around her and the story was actually inspired by a childhood friend who was terrified of this monster that he could see that no one else could throughout the film she also kind of dived into ideas of like postpartum depression where you don't feel bonded or attached Mm. to your child a lot of imperfect motherhood which i think is a really important thing that horror often helps dissect Mm -hmm. is how like not everyone loves motherhood off of that not everyone like immediately loves their child and it's actually like a pretty common occurrence for women but yet there's a lot of shame and isolation associated with that they said it's also explored in films like oculus and lights out and the science behind it was this idea of a full full ado which is like Uh, madness shared by two which is an actual historical phenomenon (laughs) which is so crazy to think about it's basically this idea that like two people can begin to experience the same like hallucinations and like insane problems which i don't even really understand how that works (laughs) but they yeah they bring that up because throughout the story obviously then mother and the son begin to experience the same trauma from this monster that's living in their house and the most notable part i thought of this story was the mother locks the monster in the basement at the end so Mm -hmm. she doesn't kill it but she like contains it and um it's because that monster was a manifestation of her grief and trauma And so it was kind of symbolizing the fact that, like, you're not going to be able to entirely get rid of it, but you can, can, like, contain it and maintain it so that it doesn't affect you the same anymore. So Mm, I thought that was, like, very powerful for a horror movie to explore, where it's, like, terrifying, but it's still, like, teaching this lesson about, like, grief and motherhood. And then um, the last one they dive into is Bates Motel. Have you seen any of the Psycho movies? I actually haven't, but I really want to. I haven't either. Apparently Bates Motel is a television series that's a prequel to the original three Psycho movies. And the reason was because in the original Psycho movies, the main villain guy, Norman Bates, he like has this weird obsession with his mother (laughs) and a lot of his like psychological issues are placed on 
his mom like all of the blame for what he turns into like this serial killer creeper guy is based on his mother and Mm -hmm. there's actually a quote from one of the co-creators and producers of the show she said it's interesting in a world that has been historically defined by men even on the page to say okay this woman was blamed for everything that was wrong with this guy let's take a look at who she was as a whole person and so it dives into a lot of ideas of like the nurture versus nature debate like how much can really be blamed on that um helicopter parenting and perfect motherhood how uh, you know like sometimes being an overprotective mother doesn't actually help with the survival of your child or their mental health and then also once again like that imperfect motherhood like that she wasn't a perfect mother but she did the best she could and at the end of it all Mm -hmm. like you can't really blame anyone for the downfall of their child entirely so kind of interesting I haven't seen Psycho or that so (laughs) I don't know how much I'm like (laughs) helping but I thought it was cool to read about the themes behind it and uh, some other examples that were brought up of motherhood in the book were um, Morticia Adams from the Adams family Which I think is such a great example because she's, like, creepy and gothic and has this dark humor. And yet, like, she's often seen, I think, by our generation especially, as, like, a perfect example of a mother. Yeah. Because they, like, her and Gomez aren't evil, but they do enjoy, like, darker, more gothic things. And yet they also have this extremely loving relationship And something that was, like, unheard of for the time that the movie came out. So Adam's family originally came out in the 60s. Um, Morticia and Gomez had a very consensual sex life that was often Mm -hmm. frequently mentioned and not, like, shown, but, like, brought up. And they were shown in the same bed, which was huge for that time period. So I thought that was really cool. And then um, some other films it brings up that can show kind of those ideas of mother of a mother being challenged and shown is like bird box if you've seen that that yeah i have seen that one terrified me um (laughs) quiet place and then also et stranger Mm -hmm. things not with a lot of the characters in stranger things but definitely with iona riders yeah well yeah Mm -hmm. character so i think that those are also things that you could look at and more fully digest. My hysteria section actually goes a lot along with this because there's a lot of mentions Perfect. and tie-ins with motherhood. So we've talked a lot about just the idea of hysteria. Mm-hmm. If you go back to our how mental health is weaponized against women, that's a very big one. Or even just back to our fangirls episode, we, we talk about this a lot. It's a very common thing in in horror movies so the first example that they use to focus on hysteria is the haunting of hill house which we've talked a lot about so this month good. um because we did shirley jackson so if you haven't checked out that episode go do it i'm just going to read a couple of things from the book so it starts out by saying on the surface the haunting of hill house seems to be a straightforward ghost story it has all the familiar trappings of what we have come to expect in the genre a spooky old house with a rich and tragic past strange subtle happenings that haunt the unsuspecting residents yet jackson's genius lies in her ability to simultaneously entertain while exploring the depths of womanhood so that's kind of like what the book is about is it kind of leaves the reader wondering 
did the character kind of drive herself to madness or was the house actually haunted? And a cool thing about the novel is I don't think it really ever actually answers it for sure. Love that. And, <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, it's insane. And it talks a little bit about the earlier adaptions of Haunting in Hill House, but mostly talks about the 2018 mm-hmm. series, which all the characters are siblings, which isn't how it is in the original novel. But it talks a lot about the children's relationships with the mother and kind of like alludes to that. So like... In the television series, you're kind of left wondering, you know, is did the mom go insane or what actually happened there? And then it's like all the children who are kind of left longing for their mother mm-hmm. and the different ways that they are dealing with that. It says the fusion of mother and home is a theme explored by Shirley Jackson in her novel and other works, of course. And then it says, There was something that was from House Mothers and Haunted Daughters, Shirley Jackson and the Female Gothic, which when you go back to Shirley Jackson's history and her issues with her mother is pretty interesting. Oh, that's so true. mm -hmm. But this quote from that article says the tensions between mother slash self and between home slash lost connote a young child's ambivalent desires and fears both to remain merged with the mother who becomes emotionally identified with home and to separate from her with the attendant danger of being lost so it kind of is like i said it's both things Mm -hmm. where it's like mother home is safety while at the same time like having to disconnect from it and like the sad thing with the television series and with the book is Eleanor ends up taking her own life, Mm -hmm. Nellie, in the television series, but it's kind of like, oh, is she, was she, you know, just like driven there because of her grief or was it because there was something supernatural going on that was maybe forcing it? And then another theme that exists within these tropes of hysteria is the men gaslighting them behind it ah and (laughs) yeah so fun like for example in haunting of hill house it's the dad at first kind of being like no it's okay and then later it's like the oldest brother who Mm. he very much so remembers what actually happened the night if you're familiar with the tv show and yeah he's like ghosts aren't real i've never seen yeah he's the one whose ghosts aren't real he's like kind of getting on his sisters and his other siblings for um you know believing in it and something else that i was thinking of is like sometimes hysteria is just women trusting their own intuition Mm. and then the men in these stories saying no you're crazy no you're you're hysterical and that goes on in the in the movie hereditary which i know is a really famous movie but i haven't seen it yeah i listened to a podcast episode about it because this podcaster I like was watching all these horror movies and he hates uh-huh. horror movies and they even <laughs> talked about just the plot of it and I was like Ugh. <laughs> yeah. yeah but here in the book they like compared it to the well- yellow wallpaper because in the wall- yellow wallpaper it was before really the term postpartum depression was really a coined term because that was written in the 1890s so yeah. long time ago the story of the yellow wallpaper, which shout out to a former episode of ours, which we're, I'm going to keep doing <laughs> that know. because we've talked a lot about this, which is the we talked about this um, short story in the gothic women mm-hmm. authors of the 19th, 19th century, 20th century. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But basically, that story kind of examined both the effects on the new mother and how she was viewed by everyone and how 
basically she's pretty much like locked in her room because she's not doing well mentally and then that drives her even more crazy mm-hmm. and more depressed and then kind of leads to haunting which is like you know is it them being haunted or is it them just going insane yeah and yeah the plot of hereditary is really weird <laughs> there's the main character annie graham so she's processing her grief and frustration over the death of her own difficult mother and isn't it that like her child dies because of her son like her daughter dies because her son killed him in an accident but she was having dreams about killing her own son and and then is like is it supernatural or i don't know <laughs> i, I don't remember not- everything exactly i haven't seen it i know that it has something to do with like yeah like multi-generational trauma pretty much yes and that's like the theme of it is multi-generational trauma Something that Hereditary and the Yellow Wallpaper both kind of talk about is that are the themes of both are that women are just not allowed to admit what their darkest and basest fears and desires are. Mm. And they don't really have a safe space to do that. And also that a lot of time, like any type of emotionally charged grief is just automatically tied to feminine and it's exploited and made fun of in horror and in media. Yeah. Which, you know, isn't right and fair. And then it talks about just like, for hundreds of years, you know, female hysteria was a catch-all to describe basically anything that a woman did that was unusual. Yeah. Um, and then another thing, just to further on with hysteria and the, I don't want to say phenomenon because that sounds horrible, but just kind of like how women can sometimes be drawn to uh, kill their own children. Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like they take their own lives and ch- their own children there's another movie that i hadn't heard of called the others that stars nicole kidman where basically it talks about it's kind of the lens of like how war can affect women and her house is very secluded in the woods and her children have an unusual disease where they can't like be out in the sun so that makes it you feel even more secluded and i think make her feel even more trapped And then her husband comes back from war, but then very quickly leaves. And so she's like, why did he leave me? What's going on? Mm -hmm. Only for you to find out that she killed her children and herself. And they are the ones haunting the home. Uh, So then when he came back to the castle, castle home. Yeah. And like discovered his family and discovered that it was haunted that's why he left and that kind of goes back to like women hysteria feeling trapped in their own environments and surroundings and then kind of like i said like that mix between are they going crazy or are they actually being haunted by the supernatural and how like how much of a line is there really between the two of them anyways dark stuff that's don't so mind interesting me. though There's this one thing from the interview from that chapter where it said there's a link between hauntings and the cultural gaslighting of women. It's well documented that women's physical pain is dismissed as being all in her head. And with the stereotype of the hysterical woman, it's easy to see how emotional pain would also be dismissed as imaginary. 
psychosomatic pain in which by definition originates in the brain rather than the body is still pain it hurts feeling pain of any sort and being told it doesn't exist create a haunting presence in a woman's life it's important to add that gaslighting is even more extreme for of course women of color and transgender folks who face even greater hurdles and abuse trying to have their experience acknowledged and pain treated that is such a good point to bring up just the idea that like that's literally what I'm sure people feel like when they see something, like a ghost or something, and then everyone yeah. is like, oh, that's not real. You're crazy. Yeah, and then it's like yeah. the same as like having physical pain in your body and someone telling you like, oh, that's not real. You're just being dramatic. Yeah, and it's like it doesn't change the fact that I felt it or I saw it or it happened. Like it does exist. I'm I not insane. I feel that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. So there is... Hysteria. Like I said, we've talked about it a lot, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> no, definitely. But still very important in the whole idea of horror movies, since I feel like that's yes. brought up a lot. And female mm-hmm. hysteria is definitely more explored, I think, than male hysteria. Yes, in absolutely. everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, our next trope is the final girl, which I feel yeah. like has been really popular, like, this past year. I feel like I've seen quite a few mm-hmm. things about, like, the final girl well, trope. I was listening to a podcast today that Art Pop Talk did mm-hmm. with, I think, the host of the podcast, Final Girls. Oh, if I'm remembering cool. right. If that's not correct, that's still it's still a good episode. And they just talk a lot about, one, the final girl trope, and then just like the, like I said, just the feminist implications of horror in general, which is, which is interesting. So the final girl is, um, there was a quote that explained it. The typically sexually unavailable or virginal girl who avoids the vices of the victims, like illegal drug use or sex, and who serves as the investigating consciousness of the film, exhibiting qualities of intelligence, curiosity, and vigilance, qualities traditionally associated with male action heroes. And something that's important when thinking of the final girl is that often in horror films, Uh, The idea of the male gaze Mm -hmm. comes up. And I've been seeing a ton of stuff about the male and female gaze. So much so that I don't even really know what it is anymore. But yes. (laughs) So I thought something was cool. Something that is cool is if you think of the difference between like Marvel's Mm -hmm. Thor and like Jane Austen's Darcy. And how like... Yes, we all know that Chris Hemsworth is attractive. (laughs) There's no denying that. But, like, the shirtless scenes in the film of him, like, his powers, basically all the Marvel characters, that's not for women. That's for men. Because that's, like, that's the embodiment of what men think that they should be and what they think women desire. And so, like, superheroes in that way are, like, the epitome of the male gaze. Whereas, like, the female gaze, we look more at, like, Mr. Darcy, and who's never shown shirtless in that entire film. And there's hardly even any kissing. And yet a hand flex created an entire compilation. Man, that hand flex is literally the hottest thing I've ever seen in a movie. So, mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's, like, the female gaze, where it's, it's not so dependent on certain male qualities that are considered attractive it's more of the idea behind the emotions Mm -hmm. that exist within it and so that's the difference kind of between the male and female gaze and the male gaze is often used in horror films and action films especially when viewing female characters and it's almost 
done to show how the male character views her as only a sex object. They described one of the ways that it's done, and the perfect example is Megan Fox in the Transformers movie when she opens the car hood and the camera pans over her Mm -hmm. body before going up to the guy. Like, that is the male gaze. Like, it's showing you that he only looks at her as, yeah, a sexual object of his desire when she's literally fixing a car. You know, so it's just like this idea. And that's done a lot in horror films. However, it has been switched around a lot as well, which is kind of cool to show the audience a way that they have to force identify with the young female character. Mm, Okay. Yeah. So it's like kind of turned on them and there ended up this like forced identification with the young female character because she survives and everyone when watching a movie always wants to sympathize, empathize, relate, identify with the surviving character because you don't want to be the, the one who dies. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the perfect examples of this is Nightmare on Elm Street, which is like a classic horror film that I have not seen. <laughs> no, I have not seen it either, but I know it's a classic. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah. And because it's such a classic, they didn't really dive a ton into the plot. However, it's such a major part of pop culture. I'm sure all of you know a little bit about it. So the final girl in that is Nancy Thompson, who is an intelligent, insightful youth capable of connecting the important things in her life and the only one who is able to recognize the link between the worlds for what it really is. So the idea of the nightmare on elm street is that i think it's freddy krueger if i'm right he feeds off of fear and like exists in nightmares and then like manifests it in real life um and she's able to draw that connection and to trap him and kill him by not being afraid of him and it also went into this like idea of a communication theory which i like want to research more about it's called the jahari window And it states that we have four selves, our open self, our hidden self, our blind self, and our unknown self. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about the final girl trope is that it often allows the character to encounter the unknown parts of themselves. Because if things never happen to you, you're never able to know how you would react. And so that's like the unknown part of yourself is the way that you would respond and react and how you would handle a situation like that Mm -hmm. where this supernatural monster is hunting down all of your friends and killing you one by one and you're the last one there. (laughs) Like none of us will probably ever have to go through something like that. Um, And yet that is something that shows you a different side to yourself that you don't know dived into the movie called Tales of the Crypt Demon Knight, which was an offshoot from the Tales of the Crypt television series based on original comics. And what was really cool and monumental about this and their final girl is that the movie studio originally wanted Cameron Diaz, but the director put his foot down and demanded to cast Jada Pinkett Smith. And this was like one of the first notable occurrences of a black final girl. Because horror movies obviously fall into a lot of those same stereotypical racist tropes of using black women as the magical voodoo women or even as like disposable sacrificial characters or even as sidekicks to the main character. 
The American horror film often hinges on filmically constructed fears of the other, an otherness both drawn from and constitutive of any given era's era's cultural history. As many theorists have pointed out, the generic pattern of the classic American horror film oscillates between the normal, mostly represented by white middle-class heterosexuality of the film's heroes and heroines, and the monstrous, frequently colored by racial, sexual class of other ideological markers. Just like every other thing in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. um, it feeds in to racism, especially when it comes to women of color and even more so indigenous characters and indigenous women of color. And so that was a really cool thing that this movie did um, and that they focus on in that chapter is the way that the final girl trope could be used to help reclaim a lot of those awful stereotypes Mm -hmm. that come with race. And then lastly, this is probably the most common final girl trope I feel like you hear about. It's like a sub trope. And it's the babysitter. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes. And this is especially seen in the movie Halloween, um, the original in 1978, with Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to share this part that they talk about because I feel like every single kid heard this story growing up. And I don't know where it came from or why we all know it. But when they mentioned it in the book, I was like, I heard this. So there is an urban legend that kind of drives in this idea of a killer and a babysitter and her charges, like the kids that she's watching over. And the story, how it goes, just how I remember it from the playground, is (laughs) a young girl is bothered repeatedly by phone calls telling her to check on the children upstairs. After getting the police to trace the calls, they warn her the call is coming from inside the house. Yep. Did you I, hear that all I the time? I remember hearing that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I don't know why. They said that maybe it might have been based on a true story of a girl named Janet Christman who was babysitting for a family in Missouri. And she received, she called the police and asked them to come quick, but they were unable to trace the call because they didn't have oh. caller ID. And when the family returned, they actually found her murdered on the living room floor and the kids upstairs were fine. Oh, gosh. Yeah, which is crazy. Um, So I think maybe that's where this, like, idea came from. Just kind of funny that we all have heard that urban legend for years and years and years. And that it definitely inspired so many different movies. Um, It also brings up Black Christmas and When a Stranger Calls. But it also dives into the original Halloween in 1978 was kind of a very typical horror movie of the time period. Um, Lori, the main character, is a very typical damsel in distress. She successfully escapes her potential killer, but doesn't get the final fight in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Loomis saves her by shooting Michael Myers, and they actually bring up (laughs) that they refer to this um, on their Horror Rewind podcast as Stealing the Climax. Oh, nice, yeah. Which is funny <laughs> because um, it happens so often where the female character does all the work, escapes the horror over and over again, and then a male swoops in at the last minute, shoots the bad guy in an instant, and she's safe, and it's all over. And how that just kind of 
feeds into all of the anti-feminist tendencies in our society <laughs> that it's like you need a man in order to save you even though you're gonna do everything first but he'll but come in worry. at the last minute and fix it somehow yeah. and be able to do what you weren't able to do the entire time however what was really cool is they actually did a reboot of the halloween movie with Jamie Lee Curtis again. And what's really cool about it is that it's the same character and the same actress. So it's Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, and it shows the like like the results of traumatic events, like what happened in the first movie. So it dives a ton into like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and like how it affects you for years and years and years, yeah. like upsetting dreams and nightmares, emotional and physical distress. And also kind of, like, turned this, like, final girl trope that existed in the first movie into, like, the final woman mm -hmm. in the second, mm -hmm. where she was aware of her killer, she knew what was happening, she had planned for it before, she had lived through it before, so kind of that unknown part of her was already uncovered, mm -hmm. and she was able to deal with it in a better way and kind of conquer her trauma all over again and, like, finally kill the monster. And the cool part is is that it was also the biggest opening for a film with a woman lead over the age of 55 in history. Wow. So it did better than any other movie with a lead woman over the age of 55. So helping defeat ageism as well. One that they brought up that was kind of funny is Sydney in Scream. Oh, yeah. Because there's apparently this scene where she has sex with her boyfriend and it's mixed with the scene of her friend telling the viewers what not to do in a slasher film in order to survive. Mm. Because notably, one of the things that the final girl often had to do in the beginning of this trope was, like, not have sex yeah. in order to survive. Yes. Like, all of the people that had sex would die, and then she wouldn't, and she would live. And obviously, that's been challenged over and over again, especially the idea as well of, like, the sex having to be meaningful in order to live. That was another thing that they brought into it. And then um, that also has been challenged. So it's definitely like a developing trope. I like to think of it as kind of the horror film equivalent of the dumb blonde yeah. that we talked about. Like it's just so multi-layered and it's been challenged and rewritten so many times that it's like kind of not a simple trope anymore. Yes. It's like this idea of a developing character. So really that cool. That is cool. The next one I've done is a woman in a man's world or just women in a man's world, which the first movie that they talk about was the 2016 remake of Ghostbusters. Ooh, I love that. I watched that like two yeah, days I ago. I actually have never seen it, but I also have never seen the original Ghostbusters, so I'm not sexist. What? <laughs> oh, Sadie, you need to see I them know, both. I do, actually. But like they mentioned, like horror, like of course, many genres is very prone to sequels and remakes and everything like that. And obviously the original Ghostbusters was very very popular so they decided to remake ghostbusters and <laughs> i this is crazy it said yet no one could have predicted the backlash the the reboot starring four women would suffer so in march 2016 found fan outrage reached an apex in the day following the online debut of the ghostbusters 2016 trailer which swiftly became the most disliked film trailer trailer in youtube's short but impactful history out online news wow. media picked up on the story and orchestrated a cultural firestorm primarily hinged on a minority cluster of misogynist comments. So people were so mad that they decided to remake it and have, have women do 
you know, have women do it, which it's like something that was so funny. It's like, it's not like that only men can hunt ghosts, you know? Mm-hmm. So why is it so outrageous if like they knew it wasn't going to be the original characters and it was going to be a remake? Why is it so bad that it's women? And I loved this quote, too, that it says the, the new movie's very existence is a blot on the original, a permanent asterisk next to its name. I hear all the time the female Ghostbusters, he says. Does that mean we have to call the original the male Ghostbusters? Intentionally or not, Roll's complaint cuts to the heart of the matter. The Ghost Bros lack of self-awareness is a gift that never stops giving. We've long had the habit of using the universal to refer to men while shunting women into their own subcategory. Love that. So it basically, yeah, is just the fact that why does it have to be the women Ghostbusters? Like, why can't they just also be Ghostbusters? But oh, and they so happen to be women. Something that they did talk about, though, in this is that horror movies, though, is actually one of the most robust genre for female-driven studies. I mean, female-driven stories. In a recent study, women appeared in 53% of the screen time and 47% of the speaking time, which was not, it's not the same. Like, basically, that is very good in comparative to other. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. One quick note on the Ghostbusters, the reboot. Um, What I love is the original Ghostbusters, (laughs) because of its time period, was actually pretty Yeah, that's what they mentioned. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, it's actually, like, really sexist. Like, the receptionist is, like, this stupid female character who, like, can't get anything right. And the woman who's being haunted and... She's like constantly trying to have sex with Bill Murray, and yeah. <laughs> it's just it's uh it's so it definitely has its problems of its time period. And what I loved about the reboot is they like flipped those characters on their head. Like Chris Hemsworth plays the receptionist, oh, no way. who's like <laughs> who's kind of an idiot, but it's like so funny, and um they like. They really play it up. It's definitely more of a comedy. Than like a horror. Yeah, it's not really that scary. But it's just really funny that they were able to do that with a lot of the roles to just like flip them completely. Interesting. The next example that they use is The X-Files, which is a television show. Have you seen that? Mm, I've heard about it a lot. Yeah, same. So basically it's like the female cop right like the female detective which actually I like as I was reading this I was like oh yeah this is very much a trope but it started with the silence of the lambs in 1991 where Clarice Starling was who's a relative rookie is the film's protagonist and from then so it says following the success of the silent of the lambs Hollywood films saw an increasing presence of female detectives on screen this shift away shift away from hyper white hyper masculinity would suggest a more liberal and feminist approach to the definition of law enforcement heroism however while the detective genre has brought women to the center of the narrative with a seemingly greater degree of agency as the protagonists who drive the narration action for forward this agency is often tempered and contained the male detective is empowered in the contemporary detective film through his identification with the serial killer the man who has a desire and ability to inflict violence on women while the female body remains a site of objectification and powerlessness but something that they brought up is like at the in the pilot episode of the X-Files, it shows the character character of Clarice Scully. She's shown like surrounded by a bunch of men as she wakes, makes her way into the office. There is 
like an office stuffed with men both in front of and behind her and then she goes downstairs where she meets another man um who is kind of more for being rebellious and spooky but it's like her partner that she's basically tasked with babysitting and she's like the voice of reason and he's the emotional crazy one which is like funny that they kind of turned that stereotype on its head Uh but then they mentioned that like this move this tv series became a hit and she was given like basically decades to grow into one of the most complex authentic and important females in television history and this even led to what um a certain study coined the phrase schooly effect in 2018 where they did a study of media's influence on women and basically in the study there were several groups of women that were tested those aged 25 and older who were old enough to have watched the x-files and they were women who were actively employed in science engineering math or technology basically in the stem fields and also women who identified as the x-file fans and the study basically led to just findings including that half of those women who are familiar with Scully say that she's the one who increased their interest in this field wow and so and that heavy female medium slash heavy viewers of the x-files were 27 percent more likely to have studied stem than the more like non-light viewers who like weren't as interested and then that's interesting right? and then 63 percent of women familiar with Scully said that she increased their own confidence that they could excel in a male dominated profession and basically kind of with that catchphrase like if she can see it she can be it which i made a note said almost like representation matters or something is what i wrote (laughs) in my book but anyways yeah but i think the scully effect just shows like a very powerful lesson in the gravity of media and how it can actually like affect the way that people are perceived and yeah i just thought that was really cool and the very last one i don't i don't take up too much time here but is have you ever heard of the movie Ginger Snaps? No. Okay, so basically it's like a woman werewolf story because a lot of werewolves are like werewolves are men. Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And basically like as she becomes a werewolf, she kind of becomes more masculine. So she is attacked by a werewolf and she exhibits strange behavior. This kind of includes her immediate inclusion into the group of male students um which basically her joining a boys club but what's also interesting is when she becomes a werewolf is when she has her period so instead of like the full moon it's when she's on her period is when she turns into a when she turns into a werewolf so i'm like very interested in seeing that seeing that movie ginger snaps i feel like is her name ginger yes it is ginger okay because i was like that's really clever ginger snaps yep so even though they don't bring up jennifer's body in this section i'm gonna talk about it for a little okay cool (laughs) because the next one is sex um i wish there was like a clever name for this one but there's not because it's just sex (laughs) it comes up a lot in horror film very very often one of the first films it brings up is this film called sleepaway camp and it's this like abused child who just throughout the film you kind of sympathize with them over and over again and Uh then it flips and it turns that main character that you've sympathized with into a monster and they're the one who ends up killing everyone And you find out at the end that this character that you thought was a girl the entire time had actually been misgendered and was a boy. And for some reason, the aunt of the child was making them be a girl. It dives into this idea of, like, gender in horror and 
often how it's represented and everything and just how more diverse gender roles are always needed especially among like trans gay lesbian lgbtq all of that plus especially just because those are another another minority that don't get much representation in any media but often especially in horror um, because they love to have like the typical damsel in distress and the muscly hero and then the evil white male villain and yes. <laughs> you know all of the typical stereotypes um so it's just like an interesting case where they were able to take something flip the gender roles and also flip the way that the character is seen throughout the film into the end and kind of make them the monster but also the victor in a lot of ways to get you to like sympathize with the villain Mm -hmm. in some ways and i think jennifer's body kind of fits into the situation as well if you haven't seen it definitely go watch it one thing that's really interesting about what they do with jennifer's body is the central relationship in the story is not between a boy and a girl it's between a girl and a girl Mm -hmm. and it doesn't start out as romantic or even really end up romantic it's between two best friends who seem to have like this unnatural attachment to each other and it also really continues the idea of how sex is stereotyped because the two characters um jennifer and needy go to see a band in town and they live in like a really small town so they go to see this band at the local bar and when they get there um jennifer is like talking about how hot the main singer is and she's like trying to talk to him and flirt with him and then she walks away to get a drink and needy her best friend overhears them talking about how the main singer guy thinks that jennifer is a virgin because he says oh there's one in every town like they always Mm -hmm. flirt it up and show everything but they never give it up you know like kind of that idea of like oh you know she flirts but she never actually does anything about it needy gets kind of mad and defensive of her best friend and how they're talking about him talking about her and so she's like oh for your information she is a virgin and like Mm -hmm. leave her alone you know or whatever then kind of goes back to jennifer and (laughs) jennifer gets kind of mad at her and she's like oh needy i'm not like yeah she's like i haven't been since eighth grade like why did you tell him that and she's like well i just didn't like i'm talking about you like that and she's like oh whatever well then when the show continues the bar ends up burning down And Needy and Jennifer barely escape out the bathroom window. And then the band is outside and they invite them to get in their van. And for some reason, Jennifer agrees and gets in the van and Needy doesn't. And then um, Needy goes home and ends up meeting a new Jennifer who's covered in blood and slime in her house. And who like throws up a bunch of stuff all over the floor, like slime and stuff, and then leaves and she's very confused by it and then goes to school the next day and Jennifer's completely fine and acts completely fine. (laughs) But it just dives a lot into this idea of like sex and virginity and everything that are often explored in films and media and kind of how the victim of like this horrific murder ends up kind of becoming a monster as well in her own way. So it's just like a really interesting thing as well as diving into like different ideas of bisexuality and lesbianism as well between the two central characters because of this like unnatural obsession they have with one another yeah. and this idea of like them being the central characters 
mm-hmm. and almost like love story between them, even if it's just love of friendship kind of on the surface yeah. of, yeah, of the story. So very interesting, definitely very feminist. Uh, the very last one is a pretty, it was a pretty quick chapter in the book, but it was just the kick-ass woman. And it brought up Buffy the ba- Vampire Slayer and then also A Quiet Place. And it also brought up the fact that like the main character in A Quiet Place is deaf and how John Krasinski like really talked about, really emphasized that he really wanted a a deaf actor to play this character and mm-hmm. how that was so important. And it, it made really like interesting points of it's like a lot of people in horror are like the others. That's like including like with people with disabilities and women with disabilities yeah. and how so few of the characters really are portrayed correctly or actually portrayed by somebody with this disability and how much we could actually potentially gain from that and how other people with disabilities can gain from it because like I said with like the last quote and the last chapter and they brought it up again where if it's like if she if someone can see it then they can be it and just like in the way that like representation and like seeing yourself portrayed in media really does make a very very big difference and then the very last section of the entire book was with regarding to you know kick-ass women which is kick-ass women of the past and the future and it pretty much just made it like a last point that there's always been awesome women in these horror novels who are behind the scenes you know as directors writers all of it but also in the characters and how you know just like the cool badass woman and how maybe that's becoming more of a thing it ends with when mary shelley wrote frankenstein she couldn't have predicted the ripple effect it would have for both horror and women as two girls who read her work we become entranced with the macabre as well as the notion that we could become creators of what we loved which i love that they put that in there and then the very last thing is as mary shelley wrote i am fearless and therefore powerful which i really love that last quote so yeah, those are the different tropes. I mean, a couple of the tropes that they mention in the yeah. in the book. Also, quick note: it briefly mentioned it in that final one, but there is a movie on Netflix that I watched clear back in summer time. Uh-huh. That's really good. It's called Rebecca, and it's from oh, a yeah. female author. Mm, that is a good book. Yeah, Daphne de Muris. Did you watch it? I watched it. Yeah. It's so good. It's really good. So, yeah, that's another one as well if you want to check that out. Yeah, what a fun ending to the month of October. I know. Now I have, like, so many that I want to watch, but uh, just spooky. (laughs) I know. I know. I, like, have a long list now, and I'm like, maybe we'll watch it at other times of the year. Yes. Things are lighter. Yeah. (laughs) Happier. But things are not so dismal. Yeah, and I'm not living in an unfinished basement. (laughs) Yep, that's pretty relatable. Living in a basement is not a great place to uh, watch horror movies, so. (laughs) No, would not recommend. This is a great way to, like, kind of dive into a lot of the plots and ideas of those horror movies without actually having to watch them. (laughs) Totally. So, definitely would recommend it. So, our giveaway is still open. By the time this comes out, I think it will be only for, like, one or two more days. Yeah. Yeah, so go enter if you want to win the book like we said it all you have to do is just share your favorite episode Mm -hmm. tag Tag us us. on your story that's it and then next month we are reading the women who run with wolves is that what it's called yeah Uh uh-huh so that's what we'll be reading next month for the month of 
November, not October. So I'll be reading that and we'll have all of our affiliate links linked so that you can buy them if you would like and help out the podcast. Yes. And we'll probably be doing a giveaway for that one as well. So Probably. So watch out for that one too if you yes. like that book. It's Women Who Run With the Wolves, Contacting the Power of the Wild Woman by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Check out our book list, all of our links. Yes. Enter giveaways. We love doing this. It makes me feel like a very well-read, educated person. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) We will be back on Monday. Yes, with a November episode. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Halloween, everyone. Oh, yeah. Happy Halloween. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.